Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we welcome as special guest Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, to discuss the Janus v. Asked Me Supreme Court case and the role that government worker unions play in funding the professional left. This is the Influence Watch podcast. On Monday, advocates for employee freedom and free speech went before the Supreme Court of the United States on behalf of Mark Janus and five million other public employees who were forced to pay union fees to government worker unions or be fired. Janus filed suit against the union he is required to pay, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME, Local 31. He argued that his First Amendment rights are violated by an Illinois law that forces him to pay union fees as a condition of his work as a child support specialist. Joining us today is Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, which has provided legal support to Janice's effort to secure his rights and the rights of millions of other public employees. Mark, tell us about yourself and your organization and the case. Well, first off, Scott, Mike, thanks for having me on and, and giving us the ability um, to talk about this case of Mark Janice. It's a really interesting case, and it's a case that has tremendous possibilities and impacting First Amendment speech rights for union members across the entire country. Um, Mark is a, is a child support specialist in the state of Illinois. Uh, he had the courage to stand up and fight for his constitutional rights, which we believe are violated by compulsory unionism schemes that are in place in 22 states as it relates to government employees. Uh, we've been to the Supreme Court several times on this issue of First Amendment speech and the idea that I can compel you, Scott, to pay Mike to speak to me. Uh, these are interesting questions as we look at the fundamental issues of individual freedom, the right to associate, and the right to speak. The Legal Defense Foundation has been providing free legal aid to clients like Mike for now 50 years. We started in 1968. Uh, we have traveled to the steps of the Supreme Court 18 times on different issues. Um, this being a series of cases we've had going back to 1977 uh, that set the course for Mark Janice's argument on Monday. And they've all been about employee rights. Um, we have sued a number of employers, we've sued a number of unions, but it's always been on behalf of employees and their ability to exercise their rights vis-a-vis -vis compulsory unionism. I've been with the foundation now uh, since 1998. I've been with the Right to Work movement since 1986, so I'm a, a grizzled veteran. I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but 32 years in the Right to Work movement has given me some perspective about the violation of individual freedom when it comes to compulsory unionism. And so the case on Monday was, uh, I won't say it was the climactic event of what we do, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of work to do when we win the case uh, in enforcing what the, we hope the Supreme Court will do. But we're hoping that it'll free at least 5 million government workers across the entire nation from being forced to pay dues or fees to get to keep a job. Well, that's great. Now, Mike, uh, Big Labor is very concerned about this case, aren't they? What kind of pushback are they doing? Uh, they are adamantly concerned, and I'll yeah. let you know. And the best person to tell you why is the lawyer for AFSCME Local 31, uh, who was speaking before the Supreme Court under questioning from Justice Anthony Kennedy. So Justice Kennedy asks, I'm asking you whether or not, in your view, if you do not prevail in this case, the unions will have less political influence, yes or no? To which the lawyer responds, yes, they will have less political influence. To which Justice Kennedy responds, isn't that the end of this case? Mm -hmm. the, the whole series of cases that National Right to Work has won, uh, starting, and please correct me if I'm wrong, with <clears throat> uh, Abood, 
there's a case from the private sector back mm-hmm. has the Supreme Court has tried to draw this very fine line between rep- so-called representational expenses and all the other stuff that unions do, which we'll get to later in this podcast, much of which is left-wing political organizing. And the fundamental question, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, with especially government employee unionism that is that was brought by, uh, by Mark and by National Rights Work to the Supreme Court is that there is no difference in, certainly in the government sector, and that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, the not to in any way impugn right to work in the private sector, but in the government sector, there is absolutely no difference between a representational act and a political act, because all representational acts involve government policy. Absolutely, Mike. That That's a great, great discussion of, of the point that we were trying to make and the point we've been trying to make since 1977. You know, if you look back at the growth of the public sector unionism movement, you know, you go back to New York City in the late 1950s, you go to Wisconsin, which was kind of the first state to introduce bargaining yeah, into my, the Yeah, my understanding sector. is it was the first. Yep. And so they came out, and over the course from 1960, when President Kennedy issued an executive order saying we could unionize federal employees— the 1970s is when government unionism really kind of picked up and their monopoly power over government picked up. And so the case of Abood comes after unions had settled into their role as this monopoly bargaining agent for public employees. And the case in 1977 brought and the first— if, if I may, yeah. just in, in case our, our viewers may not understand, unions, uh, certainly in the private sector and in most states in the public sector, have— monopoly bargaining privileges, and that's what what Mark has been referring to, which means that whether you are a union member or not, if the union has organized your your group of workers, they're the only game in town, and you have no choice in whether they represent you or not. And you know who demands this? The unions, because it makes the union's bargaining position stronger. Mike, thank you. That's a very important part of all of this discussion because that's exactly what they've got in the public sector. And so in 1977, we had a client that came to us and said, hey, I can't speak because my monopoly bargaining agent speaks for me and they forced me to pay dues uh, to insult the injury of not being able to talk myself. And in Abood, we had the First Amendment question pregnant in that case. And the court looked at it, and as you said, Mike, you described it perfectly. They started trying to slice it. They knew the impact, the import of this case was going to be too dramatic. So they said, okay, let's just regulate it. They often do that in Washington, D.C. Instead of solving problems, they try to fix them. And there's really no fix to First Amendment speech rights. You either pay me to keep your job or you don't, or you'll lose your job. And that's really the question of right to work. So in Abood, the, a 9-0 majority said, yeah, well, we can't force you to pay for politics. And politics wasn't really well-defined, Mike, as you made the point. Um, But they said you can pay for these other things. And so from 1977 till last Monday, um, we have been slicing. We've been telling them there's no slicing anymore. you got to solve the problem. And in 1986, we had a case called Hudson. 1991, we had a case called Leonard. And these cases kind of drew attention to those things that were still, quote-unquote, chargeable as a condition of employment, saying that, no, these aren't really, you know, germane to the bargaining process. And a real breakthrough came in 2007 when we won a case in the U.S. Supreme Court of Washington State called Davenport, where the constitutional question came back to the forefront in front of the court. We won that case. Then in 2012, we had a case called Knox, which was a question of do non-members have to opt in or opt out of politics, which is really a, a, an important question. And then in 2014, we won a case called Harris, where we, I think, established, and Justice Alito helped us with this, saying that everything that government unions do is political. Mike, your point, precisely yep. your point. 
Everything they do is redressing government. In fact, if you look at the transcript of the case on Monday, you see Governor, or excuse me, Justice Kennedy tick through several issues. I think seven issues, saying you do all these things that you claim are quote you know operations of government, but they're all political. And so the question now is: Is everything that government unions do political? And if it is, then the First Amendment's got to apply to that speech. Yeah, and and I'm going to give a presidential quotation of my own that's that's germane to exactly that point. No less a friend of labor than Franklin Delano Roosevelt was very emphatic about this whole question. He said, the very nature and purposes of government make it impossible for administrative officials to represent fully or to bind the employer in mutual discussions with government employee organizations. The employer is the whole people who speak by means of laws enacted by their representatives in Congress. This is why FDR did not support unions in the government sector. It can't make sense. That's right, Scott. And and not only was FDR back then, that was a that was the context of that was when he was grabbing federal power over private sector labor law with the National Labor Relations Act, then called the Wagner Act. Someone wrote him a letter and said, Why don't we do this for government too? And he said it's unthinkable, to your point. You quoted him directly. But you know, and this is not something that's unique to FDR. When the executive council of the AFL-CIO uh, postured on this in 1959, they said, no, we can't organize government. Funnily enough, one year later, then Jack Kennedy, you know, or a couple years later, then John Kennedy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> issues an executive order. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the year after uh, the then mayor of New York City had just instituted collective bargaining. Right. So, you know, we can wonder how sincere they were. But even then, they had to feel this rhetorical obligation to yeah. draw a distinction between, you know, our sort of familiar labor relations atmosphere in the workplace where you have an employer representing the employer, shareholders, those with a financial stake in the operations of the business, and then labor seeking a a larger share. Whereas in the government, you know, one thing we haven't haven't mentioned yet uh, is that the unions, of course, work very, very hard to elect their bosses. Uh, the, The government worker unions are one of the one of the largest players in municipal politics, Mm -hmm. in uh, state-level politics, in a lot of these states where they have uh, uh, forced fee collection rights. And what that does is it essentially allows a special interest group, which has business before the government, to compel people who don't support that special interest group to pay for it to pick the government. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. In, in a rare moment of candor, I think a union official in California, when they were testifying in a legislative hearing, said, "You know, it's pretty cool. We get to elect our own bosses." <laughs> yes. So, which is exactly what every what FDR feared. Now, I, 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 before we get into the Mike, you started talking about the money, and of course, Influence Watch podcast is all about the information on InfluenceWatch.org, which tracks money and groups and interconnections. But before we get to the money, uh, I want to uh, pause for a moment on this question of the union representing everybody in uh, a particular spot. Now, the classic moral argument that the unions make uh, in this area is uh, it is not fair for you to not pay us dues because we are represent- we're forced to represent you, and so you're making us do work for you for free. You're a free rider is the classic word. You're a free rider because you're getting the benefit of our representation, but you're not wanting to pay for it. Now, the problem is 
uh, would the unions like it if you could escape from their representation? Absolutely. I put moral in quotation marks. Yes. Let me use my finger marks because because <laughs> it's really important to understand that. This is this is a right of association, and Mike laid it out perfectly. I mean, so let's say we have a bargaining unit of three, and you two vote for the union, and I vote against the union, never ask for the union. Now we're all in it together, right? And uh, the union official gets to speak for me and say, Mark, I know what's good for you, so just sit down, mm. shut up, and take it. And oh, by the way, now that I represent you, you got to pay for it too, because everything I do is going to benefit you. Now, to unpack that, that is something that uh, Donald Richburg, who was an FDR protege, who, who uh, helped author the Railway Labor Act, talked about this later in a book when he said, you know, we kind of fooled everybody on this, because this is, the, this is actually, it's a very topical argument, but it's about this deep. Because once you start unpacking and say that I can speak for Mike without his consent, you have violated agency doctrine in the regular law, and you violated his associational and free speech rights. What we've done in the past is we've asked the AFL-CIO to join us in what we call the Voluntary Bargaining Bill, where they say, just represent your own members. And it's perfectly legal under federal law to do that. But as Mike said correctly, they don't want that because monopoly power gives them control over the entire workplace and leverage beyond anything they could get if they just did with membership. Yeah, so they're being the unions are being compensated by the structure of monopoly bargaining. Yeah. You know, we ha you know uh, there's this ridiculous uh, legal theory that the unions have been throwing out in states like Indiana, Kentucky, that, uh, well, you know, it's slavery for us, to rep for us to not be paid to represent all these non-union members who don't want to pay us. Uh, now it's been laughed out of court, thank thankfully. Right. Um, they actually did file a 13th Amendment claim, and then they backed out of it, right? <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but no, the fact is they're actually being compensated by the structure of monopoly bargaining. It strengthens them. It they have asked for it. Yep. They want it in in their contracts, uh, and that is the compensation right. for taking on the represented non-members who would rather not be represented. <laughs> yeah. hey, actually, there's a Supreme Court case that's right on point in 1944, a case called Louisville-Nashville a Railroad v. Steel. And that question came to the duty of fair representation, which is created by this monopoly power, Mike, that you described so well. And that is the notion that the union at that point in 1944 said, you know, there's some guys in the, in the union here that don't have the same skin color as we do, and we don't think we want to represent them. And the court looked at this and said, wait a minute, you're the exclusive bargaining monopoly agent here. You've got to represent them no matter what their skin color is. They were discriminating against five black rail firemen on a railway and said, we don't want to do that. And the court said, no, wait a minute. You've gotten this power of monopoly representation. So you have a duty to represent them. And to your point, Mike, that's the compensation, their power in the workplace to decide what happens for every single worker. And, you know, it's interesting. It manifests itself. We've had a couple cases at the Right to Work uh, uh, Foundation where one worker in a bargaining unit got a promotion, and another union, another union member filed a charge against him saying, you can't give it to him because I've been here for one more day. Literally, that's the facts of one of our cases. And so the union represents this worker because his seniority says he should get the job. Mm -hmm. Who represents this worker? That's the conflict that exists with monopoly power. It's, it's, an, uh, it's an irony because, of course, generally speaking, the left doesn't think monopolies are wonderful. Uh, if Ford Motor Company developed a complete monopoly on the automobile industry, we would not like that, and I suspect your friends on the other side would not like that. Yeah. Um, because monopolies don't strike Americans as very well related to our ideas of freedom. Yeah. But, uh, well, I, I want to turn to the, um, 
to the money side uh, and the politics side of this, uh, I think the very first step on that is, Mike, why don't you tell us just a little bit about the existing rules for union money, and then we can all talk about just how big this river of money from the unions is. So unions obviously are massive political players. There are restrictions on how they can fund their political operations. If I'm the if I'm AFSCME and I'm writing and I'm writing checks to Mike Madigan, the Speaker of the Illinois State House, uh, for his reelection campaign, I have to use what are called separate segregated funds. The my uh, my members have to elect whether they freely elect or whether there is intimidation is hotly contested. <laughs> um, they must elect to contribute to our you know to the AFSCME political action fund. Uh, then it comes to the union. The union then decides we're going to support a bunch of people that we like, like Mike Madigan. You know, then write the check to Madigan from that separate segregated fund. Since Citizens United, if the, uh, the a court twenty ten court case. a twenty ten court case regarding uh, political financing outside of cam- campaigns specifically, mm-hmm. I asks me can write from my union dues pool as big a check as I want to an ind- to run ads myself saying Mike Madigan is awesome you should vote for him the there that comes from a second pot of political and lobbying money that is technically not chargeable meaning that the represented non-members who object to the union's political activities technically can't fund it whether unions are honest about this is hotly contested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there is the chargeable uh, bucket of money, which is ostensibly, I think it was in, HUD, in Hudson, there's a, a very strict delineation um, of, it's supposed, it's supposed to be for contract negotiation, grievance adjustment. And bargaining activity. Yeah, right? bargaining yeah. activity, yeah. Yeah. which... Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, whether the unions are honest about this is hotly contested. Mm-hmm. Um, and from, from that pool of money, if you're a public employee union, well, you can bargain for higher wages, easier, um, easier work, work uh, rules, stricter seniority requirements, all of which have a bearing on public policy and the administration of government but can be forced to be paid for by rep- by represented non-members. And of course, the Janus case is about whether that fine distinction that the Supreme Court keeps trying to draw is a valid distinction at all. Yeah, that's right. And that's a great discussion of it. it, it you know, what we're arguing in the case, and, and we've done this in, in the in the uh, Davenport case, we did it in the, in the Knox case, we did it in the Harris case. It was argued in the Friedrichs case, which was a case just like Janus that was argued in 2016 that we think the only reason it didn't get a finish, well, obviously the only reason it didn't get a finish was Justice Scalia passed away a month after the oral argument, but the same questions were pregnant in that case that are pregnant in the Janus case. And, and Mike, you make a great point. It gets to what is political and what is not. And we think that everything that government unions do is political because they're redressing government. The three of us have the ability to go talk to our legislators. 
They don't have to listen to us. Um, most of the time, they don't. Um, they, they might listen to YouTube, but they sometimes, most of the time, they don't listen to us. But uh, they do listen to our 2.8 million members, oftentimes, which is really much more exciting. But so, so you know, everything they do is redressing government. And as Mike said, you tick off these things like more te teacher tenure, um, you know, uh, the, the length of the school day. All these things are questions that affect the bottom line of government, the, the budget of government. And in the point that Kennedy made in the argument, if you look at his laundry list of ticking things off, just like Mike just did, you find that. Everything they do is political, and therefore it's compelled speech under the First Amendment. And that's where we want them to go, right to that core, saying, look, you, you can do it. You can redress your government any way you want, but you can't compel anyone to pay for it. Yes, and, and on the compulsion side of things, it really is compulsion because there have been plenty of studies about whether the unions, which write these large checks, are in fact representing the views yeah. of members. There are many, many, many members whose views are not represented by the unions. Because we need to say that, that uh, all the studies, usually by left-wing groups that track money in politics, uh, all the studies show that the unions, whereas businesses will often split their money between Republicans and Democrats in the 50-60% range, mm -hmm. almost evenly, um, with unions, it, it, it is a very uh, broad-minded union that gets down to 97% for Democrats, and it is not at all uncommon to see 100% support of Democrats with union funds. And, uh, of course, in this last election, the union vote for Democrats was quite a bit lower than 97 to 100%. Yeah, indeed. And and I thank the Capital Research Center for the work they do with Labor Watch and exposing these types of expenditures and the activities of these unions. They're doing a great job there and, and filling out the informational tree on this stuff. And you're right. I mean, you know, in this last election, we think that, uh, I think exit polls showed that about 42, 43 percent of union households voted for Donald Trump. It was, 40, it, was 40, it was 42 in the national exit poll. The AFL-CIO apparently did an exit poll, found 43, and 37 percent of union members. So there's a, a, a little... A little uh, statistical bliss. Husband Statistic and wife don't get along. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That happens husbands, in my house husbands, too. Yeah. Husbands and wives with different political with different political views. Uh, yeah. The pollsters ask union households where any met where anyone in the immediate family is a union member. Uh, so you know if uh, mom is a public school teacher in a state where the teachers are unionized uh, and dad is you know a conservative Republican. Then that's how you get that, and and dad gets exit polled. That's where you get that little uh, little distinction. But your point, Scott, mm -hmm. is a good one. I mean, forty two percent of the people, uh, a good chunk of those union households, are compelled to pay union dues and fees as a condition of their employment. As Mike indicated, while it may not be the quote unquote voluntary pack dues, voter registration drives, phone banks, membership quote unquote mailings, and TV ads, and all those things that that union officials can do under the law with other people's money. Mm -hmm. As a condition of employment, I mean, as Mike said, you know, they try to make it look like it's not. But money's fungible. I mean, money that they can spend on this is money they don't have to spend on other things. And so it's a really interesting dynamic, and it goes right to the heart of the compelled speech issue. And, and, and that's a great example. Just the latest. I think Ronald Reagan in 1980 got 45% of the union vote, uh, household vote, but yet they weren't on his team, uh, I can assure you. And uh, so that's one of, the, one of the issues that comes about in this compelled speech um, uh, area that, uh, you know, they're not representing the views of their so-called members. Yep. Uh, a, a slight sidelight on that. You mentioned our Labor Watch series of research that we, uh, we, we have research every month on, on the labor sector uh, in our Labor Watch series. And... Uh, well before the election, we had uh, an excellent prophetic labor watch bit of research that talked about the fact that unions, because they are so politically active, 
were paying were polling their members internally, privately, secretly, and they were aghast at the inroads that the Trump campaign versus Hillary was making in union households, and they were trying to send up the alarms to the Clinton campaign and the rest of the left, uh, but they were totally ignored. And in fact, the unions were saying things like, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, these are places you need, Pennsylvania, you need to be worried about these places, you have problems in these places, but um, uh, the president is lucky that the Clinton campaign uh, d- d- wasn't humble enough uh, <laughs> to believe that somehow she was not connecting well with union households in those states, which, of course, uh, shocked everyone by going uh, Republican rather than, than Democrat. Well, let's, but let's go back, though, Mark, to what you were talking about there, which is we'll get to, we'll get to some of the, the straight money uh, numbers that uh, about the unions in a, in a moment here, but the the in kind contributions. I mean, it's easy. It's easy relatively. Well, it's not that easy, <laughs> but it it's there are a lot of places you can go for numbers on hard check writing mm-hmm. uh, dollars. Hard, the hard dollars that are being spread around, and we'll get to that. But it's very important for people to realize that is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the incredibly influential power unions have politically. They they do lots of things besides just write checks. Right. And so yeah, say a absolutely. More about no, that. And, and, and a couple of anecdotes there. Um, you know, obviously this is an issue we paid attention to, and it, every two years you get a chance to talk about it again because union officials are dramatically powerful players in the political process. But you know, in rare moments of candor, sometimes you get union officials to, in a roundabout way, admit the power that they uh, of the money they spend. And you know, Duke Zeller, who was a former officer with the Teamsters Union um, during their battles with Kerry and and Hoffa and the internal warfare of the Teamsters Union. He mentioned one time that when you take the union's reported money, what they spend reportedly on politics, just multiply it by 10, and you get a a pretty good picture of where they are politically. Jonathan Tassani, the former president of the New York Writers Guild Union, um, I was debating him one time, and he has mentioned several times, you know, this multiple of, okay, here's what you report, but you really need to know because of the in-kind contributions and the way they can work themselves through the Federal Election Campaign Act and now Citizens United, um, there are ways to, to, the fungibility of that money allows them to do a whole lot more. And Tassani, I think, while he didn't confirm the Zeller 10 times number, um, he was right in that ballpark, and the numbers get to be pretty staggering. Bigger than Soros, bigger than the Kochs, bigger than Steyer, bigger than Hillary, bigger than Trump, bigger than the RNC, bigger than the DNC. Even even in reportable uh, in reportable yeah. funds. FEC, this is FEC reportable funds. Yeah, Federal Election Commission. Federal yeah. Election Commission reportable funds. So this is before we do any multiplication before we do any multiplication, before we pull out the union's annual reports and start going line by line. Uh, six of the ten since uh, the Center for Responsive Politics, which runs Open Secrets, has begun collecting has collected their data. Which I think is, goes all the way back to the 1990 cycle. I, yeah, I, I believe it is 1990. Uh, six of the 10 largest organizational contributors. And this includes, you know, Tom Steyer's in the bucket, the Mercer's are in the bucket, uh, Sheldon Adelson's in the bucket, the Cokes are in the bucket. Of the largest organizational contributors to FEC reportable committees and candidates, six of the top 10 are unions. Number one is the Service Employees International Union. By the way, speaking of the Cokes, because of course for for the left, the Cokes are just the uh, the complete bogeyman. I get lots of left wing emails asking for money, and it's a rare one that doesn't mention the the desperate need to fight the Cokes. Well, 
in following up on what Mike just said, ask me, the union in the Janus case that's being, that you're litigating against, just ask me alone has beaten the Cokes out in those hard dollars to parties and candidates every cycle that's reported. Yeah. Just them. Yeah, not surprising. You know, we do a study every two years, uh, uh, an affiliated group of ours, the National Institute for Labor Relations Research, does a study of just the LM2 forms. As Mike was saying, there is some public documentation of line items that they report. These are their numbers they report and their baseline. Yes, reporting to the Department of Labor. Right. Yep. The LM2 form mm-hmm. goes to the Department of Labor for unions that represent private sector employees. Then you have the FEC, the Federal Election Campaign Reports, where they show their political money. And then you see some lobbying line items on the LM2. So if you just take their numbers, what they report, in the last two-year cycle, they spent $1.7 billion on politics and lobbying just in the federal election cycle. $1.7 billion. That's a big number. Yes, quite a bit bigger than the Cokes. <laughs> quite a bit. And even if you, you know, take a, subs, you know, a subset of that, of, that enormous, of that enormous number and you just look at their contributions to the professional left, uh, there's an estimate that's been done by, uh, by the Center for Union Facts they find just in identifiable reported from mostly private sector unions over a hundred million dollars a year to groups like Center for American Progress, Catalyst, uh, uh, America Votes, the Economic Policy Institute, which is Big Labor's in-house think tank, uh, the Center for Popular Democracy, one of their organizing groups, the Democracy Alliance itself. Uh, National Employment Law Project, which is another one of their in-house think tanks. This is, you know, compare that just a slice is a hundred million. Just a, a, and that doesn't include all that they spend on pollsters, all that they spend on lobbyists, all that they spend on lawyers for ostensibly non-representational purposes. Uh, You know, it's an enormous sum. Yep. Well, you mentioned the Democracy Alliance, uh, Mike, and to remind our readers, we've uh, our listeners, we've we've talked about them from time to time. That is a group of very wealthy donors. You can't join the club unless you promise to to give away at least two hundred thousand dollars. I'm out. So yeah. yes, I, I, I'm not going to make it this year. But um, you have to you have to promise to spend at least two hundred thousand uh, dollars in contributions to left wing groups that they uh, that they select as being the most uh, effective and influential. And uh, it was started by George Soros and Peter Lewis originally, um, although he left because they became so politicized that Peter Lewis, the co-founder, uh, left. He's, he's now since left to all of us. He's gone to his reward. But uh, the, um, it has about 100 or so members, as best we know. And the, the uh, president of it, the top staffer, is one of the left's smartest strategists, Gerald LaMarche. Um, uh, and... Uh, LaMarche was giving a talk back in 2016 to a Democracy Alliance meeting, and the Washington Free Beacon was able to obtain uh, his prepared remarks. And in those remarks, he gave a big warning to his donors, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. And and what he was talking about specifically was the impact that organized labor had on on the left movement, the left socialist movement. And and if cases like Friedrichs and now the case like Janus are actually won by our side and by the individual workers, that they expect a significant 
reduction in support for organizations like Mike Tickdoff. And I, I think one, one of the studies said 28% of the groups that, uh, that are part of the Democracy Alliance, or excuse me, the groups that Democracy Alliance get 28% of their revenue from organized labor. There's calculations about, you know, a, a quarter of their money disappearing because, believe it or not, workers might have a choice of whether or not to support a labor union. According to a report by by Bloomberg News, Josh Idelson, who's actually a really fanatically pro-labor reporter, yeah. um, AFSCME has the the union that uh, is is being litigated against in in the Janus case uh, has done polling of its members on what they might do if they get uh, if they are if they get right to work rights, and they found that only thirty five percent are committed unionists are committed to keep paying, and as many as fifteen percent may just walk immediately. Yeah. You know that shows. Uh, the level of compulsion, I think, that is being is being used against uh, against workers shows you how important monopoly exclusive representation and is. Too. Shows you in, <laughs> yeah. how incredibly important yeah. to the unions monopoly exclusive representation is. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of my favorite examples on that to to show just how compulsive and coerced this sort of thing is, because yes, when you give people a choice, poof. Um, Governor Scott Walker, of course, famously put through a, tr- uh, a number of state-level reforms in Wisconsin some years back with enormous fighting by the, the unions. People remember mm-hmm. brutal thuggery in the, in the very halls of the state capitol. Um, the Democrats in the state legislature literally left the state to deny quorum, so the law couldn't be, couldn't be passed. But uh, after the reforms finally went through, um, in the city of Madison, Wisconsin, which is almost certainly the most left-wing and both left-wing and politically active city in the entire state, uh, among the teachers' union, which is the most powerful union in the state, in the most political city, um, half disappeared almost immediately. Yeah, you know the numbers speak for themselves, and and this is the this is the qu- the point of the right to work laws that exist in 27 states, been passed in 28 states, still a little bit of work to do in Missouri. The right to work laws in those states protect both public and private sector workers from being compelled to pay fees, and and you know ultimately it puts us right where organized labor should be, and that is if you want us if you want us to speak for you, join us voluntarily. You know Samuel Gomper said that organizations he he was he was one getting, of the founders, yeah, one of the, the, the old father. Old of the fathers of the, yeah, of the, of the AFL. AFL. Yeah, <laughs> he he. T- when he found out that uh, that representatives of the AFL were going to go to Washington and try to get the government to grant them these powers that they now enjoy, you know, he he spoke against that in conventions in 1918 and 19. I think at the last speech he gave, he couldn't give it himself. He was so weak physically that someone gave his speech, and he said, "The workers of America adhere to voluntary institutions." Anything else is a menace to the rights. And what he was trying to, to, to tell the, the delegates of this convention was, if we're going to go to government and we're going to get this privilege to force workers, we're going to lose sight of who we are, what we are, and what we do. And we're going to be wards of the state when it comes to political power. And that's why they have to pay politics so and, aggressively. And, and, you know, bearing him out, uh, a couple years ago, it has since reversed, but a couple years ago, not only were the unions themselves wards of the government, but the union members were all government were more, a majority right. of the union membership uh, in the Bureau of Labor Statistics survey, I believe in the year 2014, were government employees. Yeah. The tipping point was 2009, Mike. You, that's when public sector unionism members outweighed private sector union members in America. And that's just crazy. Uh, it's now reversed yeah. again because of the financial yeah, crisis. Yeah, because the, as, the, as the economy has recovered, right. there have been... You know, right. more more union jobs have been created in the private sector. Yeah, but his point was well taken. And it's a point that union officials today ought to understand. If they actually go out and provide a service, 
workers will join them. They join them in right-to-work states. They're now accountable to rank-and-file workers because workers can vote with their pocketbook. And, Scott, to your point, that's what happened in Wisconsin. It's what's happened in right-to-work states. For example, in Indiana, uh, Indiana got, got overwhelmed by the Wisconsin battle. But here's a trivia question for you two. The longest legislative walkout in American history of any legislature, where was it? I assume you're going to tell us Indiana in 2012. Indiana 2012. <laughs> yes, that's right. Good for you. 35 days. 35 days they denied a quorum's over passage of the right-to-work law in Indiana. Um, while Governor Walker was reforming the bargaining structure in Wisconsin, legislators, well, and unfortunately um, not many legislators, were, were trying to pass a right-to-work law in 2011, and that's when the Democrats walked out for 35 days. They shut down the entire legislature for that long. We came back in 2012. We got the law passed, um, and now, obviously, Michigan, Wisconsin. Well, and, in, and, in, and, in, and, you know, let's tell the story of Michigan because I think that that's that's my yeah. favorite story. So in 2012, <laughs> the unions, they see the writing on the wall and they go to the public. They think, OK, we're going to go to the public. We're going to you know ride President Obama's reelection and we're going to prohibit right to work and and any sort of regulation on labor union activity in the state of Michigan for all time. By constitutional amendment. By, by constitutional yeah. amendment. Yeah. It's state constitution. State, yes. state, yeah. right. state, by, by, yeah. by state constitutional amendment, we are going to put this to bed for all time. They lose 58-42, and in December, right to work passes. Four weeks later, the right to work law passes. Yeah, we call that Bob King's right to work law. Bob King was the president of the United Auto Workers who designed this strategy to thwart us after Indiana had passed theirs. He looked at the Michigan legislature and said, my gosh, we, they may pass it here. Thinking he could win, he put it on the ballot, lost by 16 points, and four weeks later, Michigan's a right to work state. And, and, that, and, and, and there was another sidebar on that ballot where the SEIU tried to reinstate their uh, – their dues scheme, their scheme by which they uh, collect uh, collect dues for Medicare home providers who don't actually work for the government, but got the Democrat governor before the right. governor to say that they were government employees. Uh, National Right to Work did uh, quite a quite a good job in 2014 putting a putting some re- restriction on that by ending forced dues for that in the Harris case. Yeah. Um, uh, but the SEIU not only lost, but they also incurred the largest campaign finance fine in, or the second largest campaign finance fine in Michigan history. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, the, well, and we should make clear on this that in the Michigan case that it was precisely the outrageousness of the state of the proposed state constitutional amendment on the ballot that was so galling and outrageous that Republicans who probably didn't have the cojones to push hard for right to work before that used the sort of slingshot effect to then find their courage and, uh, and pass right I'll, to work. I'll, I'll get on the record by just shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> so now, but, but since we're speaking of the right to work laws, though, there, that reminds me of another data point that we should, take, uh, that we should bring up. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, Mike and I have not had a chance to go through the study completely, but there's a, the, the New York Times, in its story, uh, one of its stories on the Janus case this week uh, by Ken Vogel, who's their top uh, Politics and uh, money and politics. Campaign finance guy. (laughs) Yeah, campaign finance guy. Um, And and a a rare straight shooter among the mainstream media, I I would say. Um, He had an article uh, dealing with a new study by a Columbia professor. uh, And the professor looked at counties with and without, the joining counties with and without right to work, uh, when right to work laws pass at the state level. And his claim, which is that we have not dug into all the, mm-hmm. the numbers and I can't completely vouch for it, but it's, uh, this is a very union-friendly professor, mm-hmm. it's safe to say. And his view is that passing right to work in a state uh, puts a big dent in the money 
that's mm -hmm. going to come in for the Democratic Party uh, and the left in general, but also that it knocks the Democratic vote in that state by three and a half percentage points, which in politics, that's huge. You're, if, you can, if you can move a point or two, you feel terrific. If you move three and a half points, that's enormous. And uh, as he points out, that's enough to make a difference in a Michigan or Wisconsin uh, yeah. uh, elect, uh, presidential election. So uh, that is a fascinating uh, question. But it, it, again, that su suggests that coercion yeah. is critical to the left and the Democrats in their political power. That's right. And Scott, your, your group has been on the cutting edge of that type of research and just following that type of research uh, from all these sources. I would agree. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, to note that when workers are given a choice, uh, some of them make decisions that say, I'm in my union forever, I'm, and they should be, and we should protect that right. But many of them make the decisions otherwise. We have always said, and I think your research backs this up at the Capital Research Center, that it organized labor and their compulsory power is a huge component of the socialist left. It's we call it the gasoline that runs the engine. <laughs> um, and, and literally, when mm -hmm. you've had this privilege since going back to 1937, when the Supreme Court upheld the Wagner Act and the compulsory structure, the monopoly power of the unions, and then you have states that that basically the default of the federal position is saying, okay, all 50 states now have compulsory fees, and the only way you can get rid of it is by using a little section of 14b, the federal law, to pass a right to work law by affirmative action. You know, that's a that's an unbelievable business model, and it's paid out well for them. And and as Gompers would say. Uh, you know, that compulsion destroys what brought together voluntarily would be an inherently powerful political force. They've been relying on the state for this power and this privilege. And when it's released, neat things happen. Yeah, no, I, I, and, you know, then there's the question, you know, to what extent are the unions as voluntary, to the extent that they are voluntary associations, mm -hmm. uh, are they hurting themselves with this emphasis on politics, with this emphasis on, you know, Afs me, I want to say it was in 2014, gave $400,000 to Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Yeah. You know, if, if you're a, you know, maybe you're a Catholic child services worker and you believe in, you know, you're an, you're an old style Catholic, you believe in the, you know, the workers, in the workers together, you believe maybe even in a, you know, in a large government to help, you know, combat poverty, whether that does or not. Um, but, you know, your money is now going to subsidize abortion at, you know, 30 weeks, mm -hmm. that, that, that compulsion and that decision by, by labor to become an arm of the professional left in all its, in all its forces, uh, just increases the level of compulsion. And when right to work wins, when, you know, the right to work goes into effect and people say, I don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to subsidize these causes I don't believe in, these political candidates that I vote against, these, uh, you know, these views in the workplace that don't protect me. They walk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, again, to take a, the analogy we made earlier, uh, if a company gets a monopoly, it tends to get slow and stupid because it doesn't have to work to get 
customers. And it's the same thing with the union. And occasionally you'll find union folks after they lose one of these battles, there'll be somebody honest enough to say, well, this is going to make us have to focus on actually providing valuable services to members, and that'll make us stronger in the long run. Indeed. So. We appreciate that when they say it. And, mm-hmm. and Mike, to your point, the tone deafness that union officials have, and, and really the chasm between union officials and rank-and-file workers is growing wider all the time. Um, the tone deafness is a result of their compulsory power, clearly. Yeah, no, yep. cer- certainly without the, without the power to compel, they would have to be, they would have to be more responsive to, the, to their members and to the people they represent. But they have compulsion, so they can sit back and kick their feet up. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. The, uh, well, f- uh, I want to remind viewers that InfluenceWatch.org has dozens and dozens of entries on unions and on union-related uh, nonprofit groups, and there's always more there. Uh, and National Right to Work and all of its sites and, uh, and, and entities is all... Uh, Lots more information there. We don't have enough time this week to get into this, but I will say that that same Columbia professor who estimates 3.5% vote change by right to work in a state, uh, he apparently has a new book coming out talking about uh, the conservative uh, infrastructure of influencers that have won some of these battles. And that will be an interesting thing uh, to, to read about. It's, uh, that's a whole other side of the story for, for another show. Uh, but for now, that's our show for this week. Uh, we want to thank Mark Mix, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, for joining us. Uh, and if you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, remember that we broadcast a live video version at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. Uh, you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. Uh, and if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.